says they're gonna they're gonna burn us out, just like last year on Bay Street. He says, No, no, no. He says that that's not gonna happen. He says, We've guns. That's the first time I ever heard of that. He says, We've guns. And uh, we're gonna defend the area. There's nobody else gonna defend it. The only way to stop this is guns. There's no way to defend these these rampaging mobs. So she says, keep the kids in, the children, keep them in. There's going to be a lot of trouble tonight. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I would I wouldn't say that you know I'm this normal uh, human being. You know, how could you be? <laughs> um, you know that this has defined me. The, the troubles, the war, and the conflict has defined me for the for the rest of my life. I'm scarred and marked for the rest of my life. So I carry that scar. I carry that. My name is Seamus Kearney. He says, right, we're going to change that. He says, uh, it'll no longer be Seamus. It'll be called James or Jim. I says, but that's not my name. He says, it is. And you're heading to the loyalist Carrick Fergus to a building site. It'll probably save your life. Come here, Seamus. Thanks very much for sitting down and joining me. I, I appreciate you taking the time now. Um, can okay. you give us a bit of an idea of what it was like grow, uh, for, for you growing up? Because you you were kind of coming of age as the the, the time known as the Troubles was, was was kind of getting going, you know. Can, can you give us an, an idea of, of, of growing up in Belfast at the time? We lived over in, uh, it was an area called um, Ballamacarrot in uh, East Belfast, and uh, sometimes known as St Matthews. That's where I was born, Four Cartoon Street. And uh, my father, he, he, uh, he worked in the shipyard for a while. He was one of the token Catholics. The vast majority of those who worked in the shipyard were Protestants. And um, around there, you had a lot of industry going on around there uh, in East Belfast at the time, Soraka Works, shipyard, etc. But uh, they were all employed. Most of them were Protestant workers. But we lived in an enclave known as the Shore Strand or Ballamacarrot or St. Matthews, same area. Um, it held about 3,500 uh, nationalists or Catholics, and we were then surrounded, completely surrounded by Protestants. And they had a history of sectarianism as far back as the seven, or the 18th century. So there was always trouble. And uh, the previous trouble would have been about 1920 or 22. But uh, this period we're talking about in the lead up to the troubles, which commenced in August 1969, was uh, it was around mid-60s mid where, where we were growing up, just prior to the troubles actually breaking out. And, but even then, there was always tension because you were always getting chased and you were always being discriminated against. Um, you felt it. And um, when my father was paid off from uh, the shipyard, uh, he he ended up doing labour on Townsend Street, which was an area at the bottom of the Lower Falls. And um, he actually tried to apply for the police, the RUC. And uh, he was a big guy, six foot one, and um, fit. But uh, he was turned down. He had perfect eyesight, but he was turned down. And on his application form, it says refused because of poor eyesight. So they were using all sorts of methods to keep Catholics out of work and uh, keep them subjugated. And um, so uh, I, I went to St. Matthew's Primary School and then later went to St. Augustine's uh, on the Ravenhill Road and the secondary school but it was again in a protestant area on the armor road and uh we were always getting you always had to run a gauntlet from st augustine's school on the ravenhill road down to short strand you used to get a bus and sometimes the bus was stoned or when you were getting off you're getting chased you're always getting chased by protestants and they're always calling you finian and finians were another word for tag or catholic 
and uh, but um, very similar to the deep south in America around that time. Um, probably on a lesser scale because Northern Ireland was the north of Ireland was pretty small, but uh, but the same type of discrimination was going on. Um, you weren't allowed to fly the tricolor, the Irish flag. You were allowed to fly the Union Jack, the 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 British flag, but you weren't allowed uh, to fly the 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 Irish flag. And uh, and one time, for example, in nineteen sixty four, September sixty four, there were uh, known as the tricolor rats, and that's when a, a flag appeared in in a, in a, in a shop at in a, in a like a Republican shop uh, at the bottom of the Lower Falls, and um, it it appeared anyway in the window, and um, Paisley, Ian Paisley, and the Protestants they. They demanded that the, the RUC remove it. So the RUC done as they were told. They tried to remove the flag and there was a rat and it was known as a tricolor rat. And um, so that's the type of thing, even for flying a flag, it would cause a rat. Um, so the, the RUC or the police, they referred to that as a breach of the peace. And uh, the and under the Flags and Emblems Act, you weren't allowed to fly the national flag. So you were completely subjugated. Uh, you, you didn't hold, you, they weren't, you couldn't hold a, a proper job. Catholics got labouring jobs. And they certainly were not allowed into the, the shipyard. Although my father was a token Catholic, he was allowed in for a while, but then sacked. And uh, he was a brass molder, but um, he was sacked. And uh, they were, he was basically told that the, it was a damn trade, that no longer any need of him. So they were using all sorts of methods, gerrymandering. Um, uh, you know, uh, for example, a businessman. Businesses were held by the vast majority and were Protestants, and um, they held businesses. Very few Catholics would hold a business in the north of Ireland at that time. This is the period, the 50s and the 60s. And uh, so a, a Protestant businessman could hold, he could have four or five votes, even though he was just one businessman. So they they were manoeuvring and they were, um, they, they used all sorts of insidious methods to hold on to power. And that actually originated as far back as 19. Uh, 21. So on December the 6th, 1921, the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was, was signed. And after a war in the, in, on the island of Ireland, which commenced in January 1919, and it ended in July uh, 1921. But um, significantly in January of 1921, in 10 Downing Street, the then Prime Minister Lloyd George, he asked the uh, uh, his uh, military commander, in Ireland, could he crush the IRA at that time? So we're talking 1921. Could he crush them? This is January 1921. Could he crush the IRA because he didn't want to negotiate with them and restore peace in Ireland? And uh, the the GOC law enforcement said he could give him another six months and he would crush the IRA, but he failed. And by July, um, the Lloyd George had them around the table again and said, "Right, I'm going to see. I'm going to sue for peace here." And it'll, so in July 1921, there was a ceasefire. And out of that, you had the negotiations commencing between the IRA and the British. And eventually that, that resulted in the December the 6th, 1921 uh, treaty, which divided the country. And that would have affected me and my family. You know, that's that was a, a blueprint for disaster for the North, not the South. The South were going to get 26 counties. There's 32 counties on the island of Ireland. 26 counties were going to be free um, as a result of this treaty of December the 6th, 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty. In the North, 400,000 Catholics would be cut off from the, the motherland. And they 
they were going to be hammered. They were going to get punished for falling on the wrong side of the demarcation line. So uh, that included that's four hundred thousand included my family, and um, so they were basically ostracised, and they were going to be punished because a new Protestant government for Protestant people would be formed. It was going to be artificially manufactured because um, they wanted an inbuilt majority, which they believed would last a thousand years. So this was going to be their glorious uh, state. And it would be a Protestant government for a Protestant people, and it would be, um, it would be like um, a golden age for the Protestant people, and uh, this Protestant ascendancy would last forever, a thousand years, and uh, so they got rid of, for example, in the in the province of Ulster, Ulster was going to be become Protestant, and it would fall uh, under the uh, the treaty, but they there was an inbuilt. It wasn't a, uh, an inbuilt Protestant majority with the the the, the historic province of Ulster because that included uh, Kevin Monaghan and Donegal. So they decided, right, under the Boundary Commission, we'll give Kevin and Monaghan and Donegal, give them to the south so that we could have our inbuilt majority. And that's what happened. So it ended up with six counties with a Protestant majority. And uh, that continued from 1921. Right through, there was a whole period of discrimination against the Catholics uh, in the north, uh, the 400,000 that were cut off. And um, that continued throughout the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The IRA tried to break the the, the link in uh, Operation Harvest in 1956, but it failed to gain popular support and it pattered out in 1962-63. And that was known as the Border Campaign or Operation Harvest. So uh, post-1963, post-Operation Harvest, you had a whole discrimination continuing. And uh, under Special Powers Act, etc., um, they they really had our uh, they really had their their jackboot on our neck, and um, you know we we were completely um, on our knees. So in nineteen sixty nine, that's when the the the, the conflict uh, broke out. You had civil rights marches in nineteen sixty eight. So could, could you remind us what, what year were you born again? J just to put it in context. When I was born, I was born nineteen fifty seven. Nineteen fifty seven, I was born. So um, by sixty seven, ten years later, um, you had the civil rights marches. Marches started. They started around nineteen sixty eight. Civil rights, and they were being battened off the streets. They were basically asking for simple things like they weren't asking for a united Ireland or an end of the, the partition. They were just simply asking for one man, one vote. They were just asking for the democratic initiative to be to be applied, but uh, they were met with Protestant and Unionist hostility, supported by a British government who, uh, up until then, had taken their eye off the ball in London. They they basically allowed them to have a free reign, this uh, artificial state called Northern Ireland, and um, they, they were running their their own state, and they were they they were using it. Um, you know, they basically were discriminating against. Uh, their, their Catholic neighbours. So uh, in 1969, uh, you had uh, the war starting. The IRA wasn't in place. Um, the IRA was actually selling guns to the Free Wales Army uh, by 1968. And uh, they were going in a different direction because of the border campaign or Operation Harvest, 1956 to 63, because it had failed, the military campaign had failed. They were disillusioned and the IRA was, were more or less defunct, defunct. Whatever weapons they had, they were selling them off to the FWA, Free Wales Army. And uh, so they were 
they were going in a more Marxist. Uh, Cahill Golding was OC at the time, officer commanding of the IRA at the time, 1968 and 69. And they, they were going down a, a road of uh, sort of... Uh, electoral intervention um you know uh, they were moving away anyway from a, a nationalist point of view they were moving away they were moving into more international revolutionary uh inter in, international revolutionary uh party they were trying to become and and then this happened out of the blue um the people were uh their, their houses were burnt out in bombay street um they had the battle of the bog said basically people were angry it was a whole uh eruption of civil disorder Nothing to do with the IRA, and uh, this was just coming from the base up, the the nationalist people, and uh, it was spontaneous, and wasn't organised. And uh, out of that, you had the Protestants backlashing. They burned out Bombay Street. Um, the RUC went in with a heavy hand to, to quell the disorder in Derry, Battle of Bogside, and in Belfast, Bombay Street. And then out of that, um, you had uh, the British arriving in August nineteen sixty nine. So the British were there. They said they were there as like a, a UN peacekeeping force. Um, and they were going to try and uh, separate the two sides, the two warring factions, Protestant and Catholics. They were trying to see this as a holy war, which it wasn't. It was territorial. And um, so you had August 69 with the, the conflict starting and the British have arrived. Okay. Um, so so you were kind of growing up, you were growing up as as like it was heating up, as it was building up to that point. Um, and 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 you 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 mentioned that that kind of all through your life you you remember there being like sectarianism and and you remember yeah. being different because you're Catholic and stuff. What, what was there ever was there ever a time growing up like maybe in your teens and preteens that 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 you you'd have still been able to be be friends with Protestants or or they they they, they wouldn't mind being friends with you? Was there ever a time when there was kind of an intermingling? Um, for me, apparently. That there was uh, I, I can just speak about my own life experience um for me no uh we went to St. Augustine school so there, it was always very segregated society um and this this rubbish about Catholics used to go to the bonfires I don't know where that came from or we used to celebrate the 12th that's not true uh, it might have happened on a individual basis but in general um the, the doors would have been closed in in the short strand. Um people would have <laughs> people would have stayed in their houses while the orange bonds walked past or marched past. There was there was there were, for example, uh, they were outside the chapel. We lived uh, behind St. Matthew's Church in uh, 12 Larry Street. And you can hear them from the road shouting and bawling, yes Finian efforts, yes Finian this, kick the Pope. Um you shouldn't be up in the north, you should be down south, yes Finian efforts. Oh my God. It was just they were so it was so vitriolic so my mum used to keep us in while that was going on that period of the 12th of July the marching season which usually started around April and carried on into September so it was a hell of a long summer for us or we used to head off to Kalak in County Down a seaside resort to get away from them and their sectarianism but um, so no it was all we have all bad memories of that um, in living where I lived um, totally surrounded by up to 40, 50,000 Protestants 3,500 Catholics being subjugated and corralled in a small enclave. So, um, for example, in 73, uh, I left school um, and uh, I went, for, uh, my cousin got me into an electrical firm called G. McFallen Company in Great George's Street. And when I went in, this is an example of what, I, what I'm trying to explain. Um, the, the, managing, the managing director said, um, have you got six junior certificates, Kearney? I said, yeah. I got that in St. Augustine's. There was a 
they're abolished now, but uh, they were known as junior certificates, but I had six of them anyway. And then after that, you had O-levels and A-levels. And he says, right, that's good. He says, um, you seem to be quite intelligent. So um, what's your what's your full name? I says, uh, my name is Seamus Kearney. He says, right, we're going to change that. He says, uh, it'll no longer be Seamus. It'll be called James or Jim. I says, but that's not my name. He says, it is. And you're heading to the loyalist Carrick Fergus to a building site. It'll probably save your life. So I've had... I've had led two lives. I've had a, a life where people know me as Jim or James Kearney and other people know me as Seamus Kearney. My real name is Seamus Kearney, but I, I've, I've led a, a dual role from when I was 16. And sometimes at work, I run my own business, electrical business, even up, up until today. And uh, people wouldn't know me as Seamus Kearney. They would know me as James Kearney, James or Jim. And that came about as far back as when I was uh, 16, uh, when the, 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 the firm manager or the owner of the firm, George McFall, Jim McFall, changed my name to Jim or James. And uh, because I was going to a loyalist area to work in Carrick Fergus, a building site. And um, that's the type of thing. You had to change your name. The, the Shawns became John. The, the, the Seamus became James. You know, they didn't have to change their name. Mervyn or Trevor or, you know, their names remained the same. They had nothing to fear. It was, we had the fear. We had the fear, the change of name. We had to change our name to suit them or to protect ourselves. So that's just a small example of uh, of the type of discrimination and the type of fear that we were living under. Um, sorry, as you, I say. You, you touched on it. You touched on it there, but, but, but some of the things some of the things that you would have seen as like as like a teen or a young teen i mean for for example this this uh this thing about like mobs uh like sectarian mobs coming in and and burning out an area running people out of their ho homes it's it, when you think about it it's, it, it's an incredibly uh it's it, it's an incredibly like traumatic thing to for for anyone to to go to 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 to, to literally be ran out of your house by by a mob you know yeah. um, that, that that must have that, that must have that must have had a like like a huge effect on you yeah, well, that actually came the following year, 1970, and uh, that was uh, June the 27th. That's ingrained in my psyche. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I would, I wouldn't say that you know I'm this normal, uh, human being. You know, how could you be? <laughs> um, you know that this has defined me. The, the troubles, the war, and the conflict has defined me for the for the rest of my life. I'm scarred and marked for the rest of my life. So I carry that scar. I carry that that um, stigma. Um, but um, I accept it, but I wouldn't say, oh, I'm a very normal human being. I'd like to I'd try to be normal, but after coming through that type of trauma, I don't think you can be totally normal. And uh, can you ever recover from it? Probably not. Um, however, um, there's a richness there is uh, because I can I have the ability to articulate, I have the ability to convey to people like yourself, John, uh, what it was actually like. I have this like a photographic memory. It's like flashbacks all the time. And I can actually, when I talk, I, I'm, not, I'm not actually talking about it. I'm reliving it. I've actually got a, a strange um, capacity to do that. And that's out of the trauma. Um, so the trauma sort of bubbles up now and again. And um, I'm able to articulate that, that trauma, which people have told me is very vivid. And it's very, uh, it's as if they're there with me. And that that's because of the trauma. So there's always an emotional cost to, to to the trauma. But then the benefit is people from this generation, from people who haven't experienced it, they actually start feeling it. 
you know, they can actually, they don't really, I relive it, but they feel that uh, that whole reliving experience. But in, for example, in August, they, oh, uh, sorry, June, June, uh, they arrived in August 1969, British troops, combat troops all arrived in the short strand into the north and they, they appeared outside our school, St. Matthew's Primary. And um, there was a honeymoon period where my mum and all was giving them tea because she thought, well, they're going to help us. They're going to save us. And against the, the hated RUC, who we referred to as SSRUC, um, they were a sectarian force who supported and propped up the British, uh, the Ulster uh, government at Stormont. And um, so we were glad to see them. I wasn't particularly, but um, the, the, the people in, in the area were, I have to say, they were giving them tea and buns. And, and that that honeymoon period for us lasted right through until the following year. So from August 1969 to the following June 1970. And as I say, I'm talking about the short strand area where I lived. I'm talking about life experiences. Um, I'm a, I was an eyewitness to this um, and what I remember. And uh, so I'm not talking in the abstract. I'm talking about real situations here, what I what I experienced. And um, within, within the following year, June the 27th, um, they uh, assembled outside the church on the Newton Arch Road. There was over a thousand of them. And um, they were shouting and bawling um, that they were going to um, storm the chapel. And... Uh, burn us out our street was a small street that lived or we were situated just behind the chapel so that meant if they storm that chapel they're gonna be, they're gonna end up burning our street out they're gonna burn us out and um so they're gonna rape all them women as well while we're at it so you were completely vulnerable there was a regiment of soldiers there so we thought they'll protect us but they pulled out so they were asked a few days later by by um journalists like Simon Winchester. Why did you pull out of the short uh, strand area when those 3,500 people were completely exposed to these loyalist thugs and gangsters? Why did, and they were, there was a, a drunken mob were going to storm the chapel. Why did you, why did you pull out? And the command officer, I think it was the Anglican regiment. Um, he said, uh, there was trouble elsewhere in the city and that we were stretched. We couldn't, we couldn't protect the church and we couldn't protect the area. So we pulled out. <laughs> which left us completely vulnerable. So they assembled uh, that afternoon, uh, 27th of June, 1970, and they were shouting and bawling, and they were, they were getting ready for uh, to storm the chapel that night. So, so um, my uncle Johnny, George, he lived in Chemical Street. He came around. My mum's distraught. And he says, Kathleen, calm down. It'll be all right. He says, what do you mean it's all right? He says, they're going to they're gonna burn us out. Just like last year at Bombay Street, he says, "No, no, no." He says that that's not going to happen. He says, "We've guns." That's the first time I ever heard of that. He says, "We've guns," and uh, we're going to defend the area. There's nobody else going to defend it. The only way to stop this is guns. There's no way to defend these these rampaging mobs. So he says, "Keep the kids in, the children. Keep them in. There's going to be a lot of trouble tonight." And um, she at eleven o'clock that night. Um, that's the first time I ever heard gunfire. All you heard was bang, 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 bang. My mum came up the stairs. We were in the back room. I got up and looked out through the window, and I could see the the side of the church. Couldn't actually see under the road, but could see the side of the church. And our my school, Samathi's Primary, I could see past that. And all you heard was shooting. And it was about eleven o'clock. It started. My mum came up the stairs. She says, "Is that shooting?" Here's me. I think so. 
she says, get under the bed, the three of you. So there was three boys. There was myself, Michael and Sean, and my sister Anne. She got under the her, her single bed, and we got under our bunk bed, three of us. And we lay there all night under the bed. And so I was 13, and they were 11. And that shooting went on all night. Scary, like, you know, it was just, you were waiting on them coming in. You didn't know who the hell was shooting. But it went on all night with a gun battle. And it went on all night. And about, about it started getting light around about five. And uh, I got up and looked out the window. It was all red glow coming from the front of the road. Like, there was fire. And um, and then I heard another burst of gunfire. Like, bang, 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 bang. And then it must have been the RA. Because sh- I heard the guy shouting, you come any closer, you orange bastards, and we'll not be firing over your heads. And um, so that that day, the next day was Sunday. We all went to mass, but we couldn't get to the front of the church because it was sealed off, and we we had to go into the side side entrance. And the place looked like a battlefield. It was like a Second World War, and there was fires blazing. Uh, the Saxons' houses was smouldering. The front gates were knocked down. Um, the I don't know. Nobody really knew what happened, but it then started to filter out that the provisional IRA and people were going, who are they? Well, they had come over and uh, they joined up with uh, the CDC, which was uh, like a local defense, well, like vigilantes, just men defending the church. Uh, my dad would have been there. I mean, my dad had died uh, on the 2nd of June, 1967. So he would have been there, but he, he had died of a, a brain hemorrhage a few years earlier. But my cousins were there, uh, which was the likes of Jimmy George and um, Johnny. And people like that, and they, they later told my mum that um, cause she found she she wanted to know what happened. So he called around later, a few days later, and said the area is defended. We we'll saved the area, and she said what happened. And my, my uncle Johnny said he says they stormed out of the McMacken's pub like maniacs, and uh, they were shouting about raping the fucking women and and burning the, the church down. I had this thing about the Catholic Church and the Loyalist area on the Norge Load. It was like a, a magnet to them. They wanted to burn it out and they wanted to get rid of these the Pope Popery. You know, they're shooting all this rubbish about kill the Catholics, kill, you know, F the Pope, burn the church. They hated the fact that the church was sitting on a loyalist area on the front of the Norge Road. And uh, they wanted to they always were into they tried to do it in 1920, 21, and then they were at it again in June 1970. But it says when they stormed the church, they were they were on the railings, and then out of the blue, um, a gunman stepped forward, and he was in the provisional IRA, and he opened fire with a submachine gun, wrecked it, and um, that stopped them. They couldn't believe it. They were shouting, "Those effing Fenians have got guns!" As if to say, "How dare you resist? How dare you?" In other words, we were meant to uh, lie under our beds and allow them to come in and torch the houses and kill whoever they wanted. That's what and being supported by the RUC, they were supporting them that night. The police were supporting them, so we were expected to uh, just accept it and to like the way we had been up to then for fifty years, from nineteen twenty one right up until nineteen seventy. Lick it up, suck it up, accept it. Use our, you know, use our only Fenians and Catholics and lie down, and let us walk over you. But that was their attitude, because they were shouting, "Them Fenians have got guns." In other words, how dare you? How dare you resist? <laughs> and that was the first form of resistance, really, since 1921. And, Wait, um, so, sorry. Um, so so just, just to put a bit, a bit of context on the situation that you're in, 
um you're 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 very much um very much discriminated against being a catholic there's there's violence there's there's attempts to 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 run you out of the areas the police force at the time were were, were seen as being no help whatsoever they were on the side yeah. of the loyalists no, and they were all protestant they were right. protestant the, the army um the army yeah. no they, they were kind of a token gesture they, they didn't actually help okay so so I, I i could understand i could understand people resorting to the only other option you have which is like a paramilitary group um um did 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 that did that play into your own decision to eventually join and, and, and when was that when did you when did you um, try to join well that 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 uh our uh public opinion from the national stage started changing after that 1970 uh after the battle of St. Matthews, people were starting to say um god if the british army who were meant to come in as a UN peacekeeping force, can't keep them 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 back, then, and they can't defend us. Then there was a whole loss of confidence in the British Army, and uh, opinion changed against them. But probably the most pivotal moment was the following month in July nineteen seventy, when the Brand Faulkner government says, "Let's find out where did they get those guns." They were more interested not in defending us; they were interested in where did the guns come. So let's disarm these people, and. They wanted the they the Faulkner sent in the the British Army to, to recover the guns from the Battle of St Matthews, and they stormed. Well, that was one of the reasons, and uh, so the, 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 they were they feared a resurgent IRA from the Operation Harvest from fifty six sixty three campaign. So they were alarmed at the fact that uh, they were shooting Protestant people. <laughs> That's how they seen it. But we seen it from a different perspective. We seen it as defending ourselves. They defended the area, and it was a provisional IRA that did that. So they gained a lot of kudos for that. They got a lot of brownie points, the provisional IRA, for defensive of that area. And um, so people were that nice, saying um, they're the ones that did that, along with the Central uh, the Citizens Defence Committee, small group of vigilantes from um, St. Matthews. But they worked alongside the provisional IRA. And their commander at that time was Billy McKee in that area. He wasn't the chief of staff of the provisional area, but he, he was the Belfast commander and he had come over, Billy McKee, and he had defended the area. And we went, that's fantastic. And even my mum was saying, good on them. Um, there was a, actually a song coined uh, from that battle called uh, The Boys of St. Matthews. And um, I remember, I, I memorized the words. And I sang the song and it was known as The Boys of Camagal. Or sorry, it was the boys of St. Matthews, and it was to the, 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 the tune, I know that, that that's actually it was actually to the tune of uh, the boys of Camagal, and it was known as the boys of St. Matthews. You know, so so they were getting a lot of respect for defending the area, and the British Army were losing the respect. So that's what was happening. It was a transformation taking place, uh, uh, despite the you know the prior honeymoon period that the British Army experienced from sorry, August. Sixth to the end. At, at this stage, because because the IRA. Of course, li li later went on to be known, um, you know, for 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 some things that that I think a lot of people wouldn't agree with, like you know, like like bombing innocent people and yeah. and, uh, and e even the likes of punishment shooting, punishment beatings. At, at, at this point, it it doesn't sound like any of that was going on. They they were just kind of a, they were just kind of a group that was that was like defending people's areas, right? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Into, into yeah. A more, so uh, that's why you have to take this history, this narrative. I call it the battle of the narrative um, because whatever I say, there's always a counterbalance. You'll always have somebody saying something completely different, which is fair enough. But I'm just telling you, I don't need a counterbalance. I can just tell you this is my, uh, am I prejudiced? Mm, uh, 
I wouldn't be. I wouldn't say I'm an impar impartial, a totally impartial person. No, I'm basically um, in every war, um, which was about to happen, um, as the man said, an operation anthropoid. Pick a said he was referring to the Second World War and uh, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, and he says, uh, "Jan Kubik said, take a said. You have to. You can't sit on a fence during a war. Either you have to pick a said, and I picked a said." So I was never going to sit on the fence and I was never going to be mediocre. I was never of that ilk. Um, I actually didn't like people who were mediocre. I used to say to my mom and my dad, why are you accepting this? And uh, Eddie McIntyre uh, at the time, who was in the Nationalist Party, said a half a loaf is better than none. Take it. A half a loaf is better than none. And I used to go, no. Why cannot we we get a first slice of the, the cake? Why are we, why are we getting, why are we, been treated like slaves and second-class citizens in our own country. I was even aware of that even then, you know, and you know, growing up, because I, 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 I just seen it was so, it was so wrong, and you know, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna be an apologist for the Ulster Unionists or the Protestant ascendancy, no, and um, so. I knew there was going to be a conflict after the Battle of St Matthews, and I knew somebody had to pick it. I didn't pick a side then. Um, was a bit young, but um, the the said I decided to come off the fence in uh, January nineteen seventy two, which was the the uh, bloody Sunday. That there was a defining moment for a lot of my peers, a lot of my generation, a lot of guys who were my age uh, around that time, fifteen, sixteen. So by January seventy two, I was uh, fifteen, and uh, at the end of January seventy two, that was the defining moment. So you had the Battle of St Matthews. And they are on a defensive role. Uh, 1971 with internment, they are went on the offensive, you know. And they they basically went from defense to offense um, from about 71 on. So the, there was different phases of struggle. And now the first phase, 69, they weren't about. They were on the on the walls was IRA, I ran away. You failed to defend your own areas. So they were known as cardly. In, in 69, 70, that all changed with the Battle of St. Matthews. And uh, the RA were, had gained their battle spurs by defending the area. 71, August 71, they were on the offensive. The RA decided to move from defence to offence. And uh, that was a strategic decision made by the RA um, because ultimately they wanted to, uh, at the end partition and to end the wrong of uh, 1921. So yes, the Senate uh, as a, that there was no, that uh, that Northern Ireland was a failed political entity. And uh, they had always believed that. But this time they were getting popular support, which they had failed again in Operation Harvest. Popular support was, was now on the side of the IRA and the IRA grabbed it with both hands and went on the offensive in 1971. Interment, 9th of August, 1971, they tried to stop them. And uh, Brigadier Marston Tickle at the time said, this is only a, a sweeping up operation. We've crushed the the embryonic uh, provisional IRA. We've stopped it. We've, 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 uh, we've nipped it in the bud. And um, But he was wrong because the, the internment was just going to be another catalyst. And 1972, the end of January 72, Battle of the Bog, or sorry, the Bloody Sunday, when the paratroopers killed 14 innocent people, um, all hell broke loose. Even, even within our house, uh, myself, Michael and Sean were watching that on TV, the news coming out of Derry. My mum actually got up and switched the TV off because we were so enraged. And she says, right, that's enough. Go to your room. 
But when we went to the room, the three of us were in the room, and Michael said to me, you going to accept that? He says, accept what? He says, they're murdering our people. And that's how, yeah, that's how we seen that. They were our people. You know, it wasn't uh, strangers in Derry. They were our people. And they were being shot down like dogs by a parachute regiment. And I said, um, no, I don't think you're sitting on the fence as an option anymore. And um, here's Michael. You know, I'd like to think so. And uh, I joined uh, I joined uh, the IRA. I joined the Finnair in May of that year, 1972. Would have joined earlier. Only it was, there was that many security lectures you had to go through, and it was hard to get through, get into it, vetting. And, uh, but anyway, I got in in May 1972. I was a junior wing because I was only 15, but um, given oath of allegiance to the Irish Republic. And um, and uh, that was in May 1972. And the feeling it was like a, a junior wing. Uh, you get arms training. Yes, we, we were getting arms training on the, like the German Walter P-38 and the M1 carbine. And um, you were taught how to strip the weapon down. And um, But this wasn't the case even at 15, where you're going to be looking at the weapon, you're going to be using it. And that had, that was emphasized. You're going to be using these weapons. You're not going to be looking at them. You're going to be using them. So you're, you're being trained to use them. So, um, so from uh, that age, 15, I was getting trained on, on firearms and, um, how to use them. And then on for me in parades and, you know, we were becoming soldiers and, uh, came a child soldier when I was 15, when I think about it. And, uh, we were shadowing the, the IRA guys. And the gun crews so i would have been out with gun crews and to engage with the british in gun battles i would have been carrying their weapons and things like that wasn't actually firing them but it was with them and um so that was a decision that, that i that i made and uh, it was it, it came about as a result of battle of, battle of st matthews june 1970 um august 71 9th of august internment and then finally bloody sunday where we decided we've had enough Civil rights weren't working, and the democratic initiative was not being uh, gained um, through the civil rights movement. And as Evan Cooper said, after Bloody Sunday, uh, he says, to the, I want to address the British government. He says, you know what you've done? I actually watched him on TV. And here's me to myself. He's talking about me. And he says, you know what you've done? He says, what you've done today on Bloody Sunday, killing those people. He says, you've destroyed the civil rights movement, and uh, you've given the IRA its greatest victory. He says, tonight all over the city and beyond, he says, young men, some of them are mere boys, are lining up to join the IRA, and you will reap a whirlwind. And I decided they are going to reap a whirlwind for that. That was my attitude, I'll be honest. Uh, I was saying they're going to be punished, the British, for being here on Irish soil, and you are, are going to be punished for what you've done. And a lot of a lot of my peers thought the same. A lot of guys who were joining the the Fianna at my age were saying the same. Bloody Sunday, bloody Sunday. We all had this shamrock, and on the shamrock badge it said in black, thirteen. There was thirteen dead, and we all carried that, and uh, that was our raison d'être for joining the IRA or the Fianna uh, the murder of uh, thirteen innocent people in Derry. A four, a fourteenth person died later. But initially, there was 13 dead, all together 14 dead. So we seen that as a, an affront to us. And uh, we were decided, well, we we're going to take on the British Army here. We were idealists. We were, you know, we were young guys, but we, 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 were, we were lands. We were lands. And um, we were going to do a war to fight this war and to the bitter end. 
and the the best soldiers actually came from that whole period, 1971-72, of the fear and the 15, 16 year olds, because we later joined the 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 IRA when we became 17 and 18, and we were the best soldiers. And as it turned out, we were by the time we hit the hate blocks and took on the biggest battle of the entire war, we were we seen ourselves as elite elite troops, political soldiers. I see. Okay, so um, you you initially grow uh, join up in the youth wing. You're, you're about fifteen. Seventy two. Uh, yeah. Um. You, okay. So you you mentioned like like one of the roles would be kind of a supporting role. Like you 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 might you might hold and transport a gun for for a member that was going to use it. What what other what other duties is um is like a junior uh, a junior member doing um in those years before before you be, become old enough to be a proper member. Right, you you'll have been taken down south and, and trained on the weapons down south, but not always. You would have been taken to safe houses in West Belfast, and then um, showed from the older from the IRA men. They would have come in and said, "Right, this is this is how the Walter P thirty eight works. This is how that's what the, the you know it's gas operated or cooled." It went through all the techniques of the weapon, taking it down, the type of ammunition, and then you would have had a test fire down south. What's the weapons? Not up the north. Um, taken down south and trained you would have been in stag as they called it stag duty which would have been staying up all night with the weapon to protect the camp um down south and the republic and uh as well as that you would be doing parades easter parade you know you would have been dressed up in the black berets or green berets and then doing parades drilling a lot of drilling um and then gun lectures and also political lectures about why you were fighting and uh, the reason they didn't really want sectarian volunteers, people, some of the group, some of them would be calling them Protestants, blue noses, or let's get the get into the blue noses, the loyalists. And we they were basically told, get out. It's not about that. It's about being a Republican and it's about um, a, a historic battle, a historic struggle, an 800 year struggle. We would have been told as far back as Strongbow, uh, giving you lectures on. Irish history, a lot of lectures, a lot of drilling, uh, camp training camps, um, uh, the 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 operation of of high high jobs actually operated, ambush positions, um, how to set up an ambush, also doing dicker as the Brits called it, the British Army called us dickers, uh, which meant scouts. And uh, before an operation, we would be standing at street corners, we've been watching for the army to arrive, and then report back to the gun team who would have been sitting in a house saying they're coming up Carrigard Avenue. There's six of them. And then there's a backup of four behind that. And they were saying, you know, so we would be in, we would be like intelligence gathering and telling the, the, gun, the, the, the RA guys with the weapons where they were, where exactly the British foot patrols were coming and where they were coming. And, you know, and then they needed that. Um, they needed sort of scouting. So we've done a lot of scouting in the areas building up intelligence gathering. Um, many times the Brits went into the fort when they went in and uh, that type of thing. So we're sort of intelligence gathering as well. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um. Uh, so, so then at the age of about 17 or so, you, you, you were able, you, you, you were able to join up with, with the proper 75. Okay. Very good. What, what, what was the difference? And what, what was there, was there a very tangible kind of uh, difference in feel in terms yeah. of what did, did yeah. it get a lot more serious? Yeah. There was three of us. Who, who applied at the same time and I was knocked back a couple of times um, by the, I don't know why, this guy that I was trying to make contact with 
I was still in the Fianna, trying to join the army. He says, stay, stay in the Fianna. Here's me why. He says, uh, you're going to be safer there. You know, but I don't know. He, he, di he didn't seem to be pushing it. And he says, sure, come back to me in two or three months. So I came back to him in two or three months. He says, he seemed to be eager enough. There was an older man who was in, he was a recruiting officer for the IRA. And he says, uh, is anybody pressure raising you? No. Is it a peer group? Is it a group? Is? No, it's just me. Right. Sure, come back in another couple of months or stay in the fin Here's me. I'm 18. He says, too, getting too old for the fin He says, right, okay. So, eventually, anyway, he says, um, you have to go to a house in Anderson's town where you'll meet somebody else. And there were three of us. There was me and two others that were sitting in the house. And the guy walked in, grey haired guy. And he says, right, this isn't the Fianna Aaron. He says, uh, what you are trying to join is the Oakley Nahern, the Irish Republican Army Provisionals. It's not the sticky backs, it's not the official IRA, they're on ceasefire. This is these are the this is a warrior class and cost. So um I need to explain to you, you're gonna go through a series of lectures, and hopefully by the end of those lectures you'll know exactly where you are. And if you aren't fit for this, then get out of it. And um the, the one of the guys um, who had been in the auxiliary IRA, it was like a Dodd's army, auxiliaries, he eventually by the third lecture says to him, he just said it in the living room, he says, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I'm fit for this. I, it's not what I imagined. So um, I'm not going any further. So he bailed out and there's two of us left. And um, by the third security lecture, and uh, it was explained to us that this was not in the Fianna This was a, uh, active service. Now, there was a possibility you could join, an opportunity to join the, the intelligence department. And I met them and um, they says, basically what you'd be doing, you'd still be technically in the provisional IRA, but you'd be intelligence gathering. And um, you wouldn't be in the front line, you'd be intelligence gathering. I didn't really want that. So some guys went into the intelligence, but I didn't. And uh, just felt that I wanted to be a soldier. And I'd been at this when I was 15. I wanted to be in the front line of the war. And um, so by that, they were, they were sort of discouraging you. They weren't actually promoting you. And uh, But anyway, by the third or fourth lecture, um, he says, right, you've been offered intelligence. You've knocked it back. Um, you're too young to be in the auxiliaries, which was uh, like an administration who carried out punishment shootings and things like that. You weren't, you weren't, didn't want to join the auxiliaries? No, because, well, they were sort of for older guys. And um, so that leaves active service. And what that means is if you're lucky, you'll get about six months in the front line, if you're lucky. And um, you'll either be killed in active service or you'll go to prison for a long time. That's what awaits you. You're going to end up in Milltown Cemetery and you're going to be buried six feet under. And your family's going to be distraught. Your family are going to be broken. And um, that's what awaits you. So do you really want that? And he asked, there was two of us, and the one, the other guy said, yeah, I can accept that. I know what I'm going, going into, but it has to be done. And uh, I know that if I die then, well, um, people behind me will benefit from it. Hopefully. That's if we we'll win. But if we don't win, then it's going to be another glorious defeat, like Operation Harvest. So he says, what about you, big lad? And I says, well, I can, I can hack. Uh, active service I'll do active service and if I die then I die I accept it and I don't expect to live to them 30 anyway who the hell wants to live to 30 anyway 
I didn't want to live to 30 and I accepted my own death. And um, uh, so we, we were we were definitely a, a different breed where we didn't money, we didn't see ourselves living beyond 30. The, the 30 was like, once you hit 30, you're an old man. What do you want to live beyond that for? So our attitude was have a glorious victory or a, a, or a glorious defeat. We didn't care. We just wanted to get out and, and to leave our mark and uh, defeat the British and to basically get our people off their knees because we knew our people were on their knees and we wanted them off our knees. And the only people who were able to do that was, would be us. And this is the only way forward, seeing there was no other method. And um, he says, right, okay, so you've accepted your own death. Yes. And uh, eventually uh, I get in to the IRA. They accepted it, give the oath of allegiance. Um, similar to the, the, the oath they give in May 1972 to the Fianna oath of allegiance to the Republic and to protect... Um, the, the IRA against domestic and foreign enemies, etc. Same type of thing was given. You put your hand on the, the national flag and you swore allegiance to the Republic. And that's what happened. And um, I was now in the IRA. I was sort of happy. I was content. I actually went to Mass and thank God that I got in. Because I'd asked him, um, I'll do my best. I'll give it my best shot. And I'll do my best, my very best to fight for Ireland and, our, and to get Ireland's freedom and to get our people off their knees, to get equality, to get justice for our people. I was really believed in that. And uh, at Mass under the crucifix in Somaliki's Chapel in, in the Marcus area, I said, give me the chance to get in here and uh, help me to do the right thing. And um, that's how I've seen it. It wasn't a holy war, but I, I believed in God and I believed in spiritual forces. And... Um, I just felt this is the bit that, you know, I wanted to help my, pe my, my people.